Reading this morning from John chapter 13, beginning at verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now. Before it takes place, that when it does take place, you, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you that we can come and worship. And truly, this is what we want this morning. We want to worship so that the Lord Jesus Christ is magnified among us in our speaking to one another, in our singing, in our prayers, In the ministry of your word, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified this morning in our midst. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. And uh, we have a number of visitors with us today. We're glad you're here as well. Uh, hope you feel welcomed and blessed by being with us for worship this morning. Now, I think we're having a bit of a problem with that speaker, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, you can hear it okay? Nope? No? I don't know what you can do. Turn that one up maybe a little. But, uh, we've always had problems with these. How's that? Is that better? All right. Very good. We're in a study of the Gospel of John, verse by verse. We've been here for quite some time now. and We come this morning to these verses I read from verse 18 to 22 of chapter 13. And Jesus is, he is at, dinner, at the dinner with his disciples, the Passover meal. And he has washed the disciples' feet. And after that dramatic example of humility of washing his disciples' feet, he then changes the mood of the dinner. Now, when we look at these scenes in Scripture and we, and we read these words, we can we know what's coming next. We can see the end result. We can read it all the way through to the end and know the end of the story. We know that Jesus is going to be arrested We know that he will be accused of blasphemy. We know that he will be found guilty and crucified within 24 hours of this this scene. We know that he will rise three days later from the dead and ascend back to heaven to be with his heavenly Father. However, even though... Jesus had spoken about all of these things previously. 
to his disciples, and they are clear to us, his disciples did not understand them. They were always in sort of a fog as to what was going to happen next. And Jesus tried to warn, has tried to warn them of the things that are coming. Now, when Jesus makes this statement in verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you, he sets the stage for the announcement of betrayal. He has already spoken of it in verse 10 of this chapter, when he said to them, after washing their feet, he said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, but not every one of you. He said, you are clean, but not every one of you. That should have disturbed them. That should have made them think, what is he talking about? Not all of you, not every one. But we get no indication from the, from the text that the disciples were disturbed or troubled by that statement at all. I believe that this is a sovereign statement made by the Lord showing that he knows already those who those are that love him and the one that is false. He himself had chosen them for himself and the, and his words of happy service applied only to those whom he had chosen and those who believed in him. Now we can apply that to today as well. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 19 says the Lord knows those that are his. And we can we can look at any group of people that gather together in the name of Christ on any given time, uh, particularly on Sunday mornings when worship is to take place. And we can say out of that, those groups of people, wherever they may be, that the Lord knows out of those groups who are His and who are not His. He has eternally chosen some, and the others are false. Now, the other point to make here is that the Scriptures, Jesus said, the Scriptures must be fulfilled in this event. He's talking about this event. All Scripture will be fulfilled. Otherwise, it's, it's a false prophecy. He's saying here that the Scriptures about this event that He has just, that he has just done serving His disciples and the betrayal that will follow was one that was prophesied in Scripture, and it must come to pass. He is portraying here his role as prophet. Jesus is seen as both prophet, priest, and king. Here he is the prophet. Now, as he was washing the feet of his disciples, he knew that Judas was not clean. He knew that Judas had, not, had never had his soul washed 
in the redemption that comes by faith in Christ. We're saying here that Judas was an unbeliever. He had never been born again. Even though he was with the Lord. Judas was a false disciple. Now it's an interesting study. If you want a really interesting study. You can study the word disciple as it's used in scripture. And what the word actually means. And you will find that nowhere uh, with regard to the word disciple is salvation a given. Anyone can be a disciple, but not everyone is a believer. And so Judas becomes the central character of this narrative. Uh, The name Judas has become a synonym for lying, for deceit, and for treachery of all sorts of and all sorts of descriptions of evil. But who was the person, Judas, that infiltrated the number of the original disciple group? What do we know about him? One can see his character. If we look at the scriptures in hindsight, we can see the character of this man who was one of the twelve. I've given you several different, um, uh, sort of a systematic breakdown of, of Judas as we find him in scripture. And I'm just going to read through those very quickly without comment uh, too much on any of them. First of all, Judas is chosen as one of the twelve. To be among the the band of disciples that that were following Jesus. Second, Judas is sent out as one of the twelve. In Matthew chapter 10, we would have found him going out with the disciples and going through the the towns and and, uh, healing people. Jesus, uh, number three, Judas is is present with all the other 11 disciples as they witness the Lord's character and power and hear Him teach and claim to be the Messiah. He would have heard this over and over again. In all of this, Judas never comes to faith in Jesus as Messiah. He never put his trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Judas was put in charge of the money box. Or the money bag that they that the disciples carried with them to purchase things that they needed. Judas begins to steal money from the money bag, according to John chapter twelve. When Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, it was Judas who was incensed by her extravagance and protested that Jesus would allow such waste. When this ointment could have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. The scriptures tell us he really didn't care about the poor. He cared about the money that was in the money bag. And by the way, in, that, in those passages, he, he influenced the other disciples to grumble about that very same thing. Our grumbling... Our attitudes do carry over on other people. 
we must be very careful. The time was ripe for Judas to come to the Pharisees with his proposal of betrayal. And shortly after that incident, Mary anointed the body of Jesus in which Jesus rebukes Judas and the other disciples. And Judas goes to the chief priest and strikes a deal to betray him and hand him over to them. Judas begins to look for the right moment to hand Jesus over to the chief priest and the Pharisees in Mark chapter 14. Judas is with Jesus and his disciples during the first part of the Last Supper, apparently in the place of honor next to Jesus. At the meal, Jesus indicates that the one of the disciples, that one of the disciples will betray him. And then by means of his dipping a piece of bread, handing it to Judas indicates that it would be Judas that would do this deed. Judas accepts the bread that is offered to him, after which Satan enters immediately into him, possessing him to do the deed. Jesus commands Judas to carry out the deed, this terrible deed with haste. And Judas leads the soldiers to Jesus that same night and identifies Jesus as the one they are to arrest by a kiss of greeting. Judas regrets his betrayal and tries to reverse his actions by returning the money, but it was too late. He goes out and hangs himself. This is the pitiful life of one who played the part of a Christian but was never real. Never genuine. He is an actor in an eternal plot. Now I want you to notice the purpose behind Judas' actions. It is so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And now this is kind of a, um, a, a confusing part of the passage. So where does this come from? Well, if you have MacArthur Study Bible, you'll see that it comes from uh, Psalm 41 and verse 9, which says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, David did not know at the time that he wrote those words in Psalm 41 that it was a prophecy that would come to pass with regard to the Messiah many, many years later. But that's exactly what it was. So who is the person, if we can give our thoughts to Psalm 41 and, and a few others here for just a, a few moments, who was the person in, in Psalm 41 that David was talking about? He is not identified in the psalm except as a close friend and one who was trusted. But David is most likely here referring to Ahithophel. Ahithophel was his main counselor. He was the one who gave David advice when it was time to 
make a decision or go into battle. Ahithophel was his close, faithful counselor who defected, who left David and defected to Absalom, his son, who had rebelled against him. And Absalom had gathered quite, a, quite an army of Israelites to follow him. And Absalom was claiming himself to be king, telling all the people of Israel, if you have something that needs to be judged, bring it to me. Bring it. Don't take it to David. I'm the true king of Israel, he was saying. The story can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Through, verse, through chapter 17. Now, let me just give a brief on that so that we know the historical background here of what is said by the Lord in chapter 13 of John's Gospel. Absalom had caught David unaware and had come to Jerusalem to claim himself to be king. David found out that Ahithophel had gone over to Absalom, and David, David fleeing now Jerusalem, fleeing away from Jerusalem, went out into the countryside, and a band of uh, a large band of Israelites went with him. And Absalom has now moved into the kingly palace in Jerusalem. Ahithophel has left David and gone to Absalom to be his counselor. And so David, knowing that Ahithophel's counsel was always good counsel, prayed that the counsel of Ahithophel that he gave to Absalom would fail, that he would give him bad counsel. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was disregarded by Absalom, which was an answer to David's prayer, he left Absalom and went to his home, to his own home. And he went out and hanged himself. There's a great correlation here between Second Samuel 15 to 17 and John chapter 13 and the prophecy that was made by David in Psalm 41. There is a sovereign correlation. Since Judas went out and hanged himself after his betrayal, this all ties together. Ahithophel had eaten at David's table, and Judas had eaten with Christ. Ahithophel had betrayed David, and Judas betrayed Christ. Now, in the ancient East... To eat with someone at their, in their house, at their table, was considered a sign of friendship and loyalty. When a person entered your home in that day, you would always give them a, uh, they would always have their feet washed. You would give them a place of honor at the table. You would, you would feel responsible for their well-being even so much to protect them, even with your own life, if need be. This was the Eastern thinking of having a guest in to eat at your table. 
Mephibosheth, if you'll remember, after David found out that <clears throat> that a relative of Saul was still alive, he gave Mephibosheth the invitation to eat at his table until he was until he was dead. David could have killed Mephibosheth simply because he was a relative of Saul. But instead he gave grace to Mephibosheth, inviting him in to eat at his own table. For a friend who had eaten at one's table to prove disloyal was the most bitter of hurts. Now if you'll turn to Psalm 55 with me. We find another instance where David speaks of and rehearses the pain of the betrayal of one of his closest confidants, which was most likely Ahithophel. Now in that psalm, he speaks of the tumult of anguish caused by those uh, of Absalom's band that were against him. And then in verses 12 to 14, this is what he says. He speaks of that devastation. This is a personal devastation to David. Notice verse 12 to 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. We expect enemies, don't we, to taunt us. To do bad towards us, to speak evil of us, to betray us. He says, it's not an enemy that taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Throng. This is Ahithophel. This is the man whom David loved. The man who ate with him at his table. Who walked with him in the way. Who worshipped with him at the temple. He was the man who deserted and betrayed David. Zechariah chapter 11, I won't, have, I won't have you turn there, also predicted that the Lord would be betrayed by Judas, speaking of the price of the act that he got from the chief priest, 20 pieces of silver. Now, I want you to understand that Judas was not a robot programmed to betray Jesus, but rather... It was his own desire to freely choose to turn on Jesus. He is fully responsible for his actions, even though he was predetermined to carry out God's plan. You say, how can those two things be? I don't know. I can't explain God's sovereignty except that it is sovereign. And, and, and that man still has responsibility for his own actions. In fact, 
Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 22, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The scene from prophetic scripture is cast in Judas, who had spent the last three years with Jesus, and now he will turn against him in the most abhorrent of ways. Now this tells us, hear it carefully, this tells us that it is possible to be in the Lord's presence and with God's people and still be lost as a child of the devil. Hmm. Now why does Jesus say this to them in verse 18? Why does he say, I'm not speaking of you all, I know whom I've chosen, but let the scripture be fulfilled This is what the scripture said. Why does he say all of that to them? Well, verse 19 tells us that it is so that when all these things happen, they will know that he is indeed the Messiah, the Christ. That their belief in him will not falter. That even though the terrible things that are coming, and they're coming quickly, that they would continue to believe. It will be evidence to them to continue to believe that Jesus is indeed God's Son and the Messiah and that they would keep on believing it. Things are going to get very difficult and they're going to need to hold on fast to the faith that they have in the Lord in order to keep going. Maybe they would be tempted to see Jesus as a a victim of the shrewd plotting of Judas. But Jesus is no victim. He is carrying out that which had been stated in the scriptures about him long before this. He's carrying out the, the the will of his father who planned the ages and who planned this night to come. Now I want you to see an amazing thing in this passage in verse 20. This indeed to me is one of the most amazing statements. Notice what he says, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one that I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now he said similar things like this all along. But I want you to get the weight of the evening. They are at dinner, a time that should be a celebration. And now Jesus is is beginning to reveal some things to them that are going to be very heavy, very weighty. They are weighing on Jesus because we see in verse 21 that he is now troubled in his spirit. I'll get to that in a moment. The amazing thing is here that Jesus would speak these words in the presence of Judas 
and give him again one more gospel message. The one who I send, if they receive you, they receive me. And if they receive me, they receive the Father. To believe the gospel message is to believe in the Son. And to believe in the Son is to believe in the Father who sent Him. This truth will be taught several times again in the coming hours. <clears throat> now at this point in the dinner, at the dinner, <clears throat> the attitude is turned from contemplation of loving service and the foot washing to a cold, sober prediction of treachery. That the announcement of a betrayer in their midst caused great sorrow and concern among the disciples. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that they began to ask him and each other who it was that would do this thing. We'll talk more about that later in the passage. He announces to them that one of them would betray him. I'll tell you what's, what's really enlightening here and perplexing is the dullness of the disciples as to what he is telling them. It's as though they're surprised that this would take place. Are they so dull that they could not see, get a glimpse or a, or a glimmer in Judas that, was, that he was false all the time they had been with him? Had they not, never suspected that the money in the money bag was running low? And why? It was running low. All along, Jesus has told them of the betrayal that was coming. He told them in chapter 12, just previous to this, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Even further back in chapter 6, Jesus said, I, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Wouldn't you think that they would have... A devil? Who, who is that? Who is he talking about? And they begin, wouldn't they begin to look around and, and even to test themselves? Is he talking about me? Is he, who is he talking about? We get no indication that they ever... Suspected Judas at all. As some would say, duh. Can't you see this? Judas was always among the other twelve. He saw the miracles, the vast amount of miracles that Jesus did. He was there at the creation of the bread and fish when Jesus fed the 5,000 plus. He was there when the paralytic man rose up at the word of Christ and took up his bed and walked home. He was there when he heard Jesus say to that man, Son, your sins are forgiven you. 
And yet, he never gave attention to his own sin. Judas had plenty of good works to boast of. But as one commentator says, when good works are done apart from faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and sanctification, they are actually an insult to God. It is common for unbelievers to work to please God and then count on their works to be approved by God, to be saved by God, but reject God's Son. And when they do so, they are in essence saying, I don't need God's righteousness. I don't need Christ's righteousness. I have my own. What an insult. There are literally thousands of people in Churches across America and across the world who are counting on their own righteous acts to save them, to please God by them. When in fact, there is no righteous act that anyone could ever do that would please God except to believe in Christ. Now we come to the dinner itself and the drama that unfolds there in verses 21 through 30. And I'm not going to get all that in this morning, uh, but I do want you to see uh, a couple of things here. Verse 21 tells us <clears throat> that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Sometimes... Sometimes we have the tendency to look at Christ and forget that He was fully human. We, we get the idea that, that He is above the emotions that most people have. That He, he was too, too righteous and too holy to feel the same things that everyone else feels. But that is not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that He was fully man. He had all the emotions that you and I have. We assume these things because he was God in the flesh. He didn't feel like other people did. But Jesus felt deeply about things. He knew discouragement. He knew distress. He knew sorrow. He knew pain. He knew fear. The word troubled here in the text means to be stirred or to be shaken. It's the idea of it's the idea of movement that disrupts something. It's like shaking up a bottle of pop and then opening it and the spew of the pressure build inside comes flying out. Or dropping a Mentos in a Pepsi bottle, which I've never tried and I've always wanted to. It is, it is in the human sense and action of the stomach flipping at some terror or some fear or some, some 
thing that, that deeply bothers and the stomach flips. We all know the feeling. We've all experienced it at one time or another. I remember as a boy how my stomach used to flip when my mom would say, just wait till your dad gets home. Oh, boy, did I. I would grieve all afternoon or all day if she told me that in the morning until he got home. Now, this is the third time that John has used these words concerning the, dis, or the disposition of the Lord. That he was troubled in his spirit. There was a movement in him that was disrupting. It was causing agitation. It was, it was a deep sense of, of unrest and, and inner turmoil and pain. He was distressed at the grave of Lazarus, at the tomb of Lazarus, you recall. Chapter 11, verse 33. He was distraught at the prospect of bearing the penalty of sin in chapter 12, verse 27. And here we find him, again, greatly distressed in verse 21 at the thought of one of his own disciples betraying him. Think of all of the offers of grace, all of the kindness of the Lord toward Judas all those years to come down to this hour and betray him. If you've never felt the pain of betrayal, you cannot understand what this is like. I know the feeling well. From people whom I trusted, who I thought had my best interest at heart, only to find out that they didn't. This distress of the Lord is not a self-centered one. Jesus is not, not feeling these things for himself. He had already, long before this, set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem for the very purpose of self-sacrifice. He knew what he was doing and where he was going and what the end would be. There was no doubt in my, there is no doubt in my mind that Jesus is troubled over the spiritual condition of Judas. He knows the hearts, he could see the blackness of Judas' heart, which would soon become the habitation of Satan. How tragic. The Passover was intended to be a joyous celebration. It was a, it was a time when they, they gathered for the dinner, for the feast, and they rehearsed the deliverance of God uh, of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. What a joyful time to get out of Egypt after 400 years of hard servitude. It was a festive occasion. And even up until now, at the supper, the other disciples seemed to never doubt Judas at all. 
up to the very last hour, they did not know who the betrayer was. But Jesus' words would cast a dark shadow over this meal. Now listen to the perplexity of the disciples, the distress in their hearts. Matthew chapter 26, verse 22, and Mark chapter 19 says they began to be very sorrowful. How sad to hear that there's a betrayer in their midst. Luke 22, verse 23 says they began to question one another. This is a very difficult time. Well, I can't do justice going any further than this, but so I wanted, what I wanted to do was just give you three lessons to the fact that Judas was among the twelve and yet was unbelieving. And here they are. There are three of them. First, this whole story teaches us that fallen mankind needs more than just an example if he is going to be saved. You know, a lot of the world sees Jesus as a very great man. If you take Islam, they see Jesus as a great man, a great prophet who did miracles and who did all kinds of things, and, but they do not see him as God in the flesh. There's certainly no better example in, in humanity than Jesus Christ. To seek to live like Him is an admirable thing, but that won't save anybody. Jesus didn't come just to be an example. He came to be a Savior. He didn't come to make people better. He came to make people alive who were dead. He had witnessed the character of Jesus Speaking of Judas, for three years he had traveled with him, following after him. He would witnessed the character and like many, probably admired Jesus' kindness and goodness. He was a witness to the love of God that is found in Jesus. But without a work of regeneration, where sin is admitted and confessed and Jesus is seen as Lord and Savior... All the examples found in him would be for nothing. What is required is salvation. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the sinner. Making them alive. You must be born again, Jesus said. If you'll recall, Nicodemus thought Jesus was a great man. No one can do the things you do unless God's with him. And then Jesus says, it's not my example, Nicodemus. You must be born again. If you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. Second, Judas being with the others and yet unbelieving teaches us that it is difficult a difficult thing to discern God's elect among people. I want you to hear me very carefully here. 
The other disciples were with, G- with Judas for three, for three years, almost day and night, and they could not recognize that he was a false disciple. Sometimes we think we can pick people out of the crowd. This one's saved, but that one's not. And this one is, but that one's not. And we judge those things by what we see outwardly. That's very dangerous. That's what the Pharisees did. We can't do that. Because we can't see people's hearts. We don't know what's in people's hearts. We can make no judgments with regard to salvation of one or another. Only God sees the heart where the truth of these things are found. It is not our own particular standard of morality that allows us to say, this one is saved, but that one is not. We judge those things by how we see them, by how we're affected. And many times it becomes a way to excuse ourselves of the things that are in our own life that we should deal with before the throne of God. Appearances are important, but... They are not a true measure of the heart of another individual. It is true that Judas was a devil, a hypocrite, a deceiver, but the other disciples could not see that. And the Lord never, the Lord never divulged any of that to the other disciples all those years. We all have lots of rough edges that need to be smoothed, but we cannot and we must not judge the eternal destiny of another person because we cannot see their hearts. You have no right, and I have no right to say, that person is an unbeliever. Because you don't know. The disciples wanted to do this, if you'll recall. Lord, should we call down fire on those them? They don't walk with us. They're not like us. They don't do the things we do. They don't wear the kind of clothes we wear. They don't say the kind of words we say. They don't go the places we go. Let's call down fire on them. They're not, a, they're not one of us. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're speaking like. No, 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 no. You leave... You leave that to God. Leave them, leave them in there. The end will come and the angels will separate the, the ones that are false from the ones that are real. We have to wait till that time. Now, the third lesson is that Judas was among the twelve. And the lesson is that the heavenly patience of the Lord Jesus, who knew all of the hearts of of his disciples and the heart of Judas, 
and yet never treated him as anything but a friend. We'll get to it. When Judas came that evening, after the, Jesus had been in the garden praying, wiped the blood from his forehead, and the guards came, and Judas kissed him, what did Jesus say to him? He called him friend. Friend. How did Jesus put up with Judas being an imposter for all those years? The Lord who was patient with Judas, He was so patient with Judas that not one single disciple could tell the difference between the way He treated Judas and the way He treated any other one of them. Which tells me, folks, that we need to treat everybody with respect. And we need to treat everybody with honor because they're all made in the image of God. It doesn't matter who they are or what they've done. Because we, we're all sinners. And if we're saved, we're saved by the grace of God alone and for no other reason. The Lord rebuked them all the same way, and He blessed them and taught them all the same way. And if we're going to be like the Lord, we must determine to be patient with people, even those whom we think are not of our own number. Sometimes it takes more patience to it takes more patience for us to deal with people of our own number than it does people outside. Because you expect certain things from believers that you don't expect from the unbelieving world out there. But we must also remember that our Lord had patience with us even though we were stubborn and rebellious and many times downright sinful in our thoughts, words, and deeds. He had patience with us. And if He had patience with us and forgave us, we ought to have patience with others and forgive them. Well, we pick up at verse 23 next week and carry on. And we find some, some things that took place here that have some great lessons for us as well. Pain of betrayal. All right. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh